I'm excited for the message tonight. We are in this teaching series, a new song, really um, getting into the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. And um, I thought we were going to really dive into chapter two a lot, but I felt like God just say, stay right where you are. I am going to go into a, a couple verses of chapter two, but the bulk of this message is going to sit right in chapter one again. We're in week six and we're in chapter one and we got eight chapters. We're, going, we're probably going to be in this thing for a while. Is that okay? Because I really and truthfully, I say it every week and I'm going to say it over and over until we get this. I really and truly believe that the move of, that, that God wants to do in this area and really in this nation in the world is hinged on understanding that he invites us into an intimate, close, familiar place, a familiar posture. And if we have to stay in the Song of Songs and do it over and over and over, we're going to do it over and over and over until we understand that he invites us into a most holy place. Amen. So as I was studying this week and thought I was going to two, God just gave me a very simple phrase that I'm going to use as the title of the message tonight. So if we're taking notes, we're going to talk about this. Keep him close. Keep him close. Can someone just say that with me? Keep him close. Seems like such a simplistic idea, but we're really going to dive into this tonight. So if you would, let's just pray. Lord, we don't want to hear my thoughts my opinions, my words. We just want to hear whatever you have, God. Holy Spirit, say what you want to say. Things that I, don't, I didn't even study for, God, just let it come out. We just want to hear you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. Move through this place, God. We want to keep you close. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I was going to stay right there from we don't need any music. Just can we just give God praise right now? Just however you want to just 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 tell him how much you love him. Come on, just just talk to him for a minute. God, you're so good. God, you're so out loud. Just tell him how much you love him. Tell him how good he is. Tell him thank you for something. Just go ahead. Thank you for life, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We all have something to be thankful for. We have breath in our lungs. Amen. Amen. There's plans. There's purpose. There's assignment. There's destiny on your life. And I believe that when we really start to understand this concept of keeping him close and, and what that means, we're going to see incredible things happen through the church. And the church is not the organization called Relentless the church is a bunch of people who happen to gather at places called Relentless, at places called Compassion, at places called the Baptist Church, at places called the, the, the New Methodist Church, at places called whatever it is. We're just the people of God saying yes. Amen. This is re a little bit of a setup for those of you that may have been not with us this entire time. We're looking at two main characters in this in this book, the Song of Songs, the Shulamite woman and the king, the bride and the groom, the Shulamite and the beloved. It's giving us a picture of this intimate relationship between this woman and the king, the one she longs for. And what we've been talking about is in this, the Shulamite woman represents the church, the bride, and the king represents the only king, 
Amen? We are the beloved's precious bride, and he is our beloved. We're talking about walking in this intimate, close, familiar place with God Almighty. The one that has to bring a cloud to hide his face so that we don't drop down dead invites us, is that okay? Invites us into a close, intimate chamber of chambers as we have been studying the most holy place, presence of God. And in a marriage relationship, what he wants of us and what we should long for is simply this, to be lovers of God, where we are desiring, for, desiring him to fulfill every desire we could possibly ever have so that everything else is just an, is just an overflow from a secret place relationship with, with the King of Kings. Amen? But we must want him as our lover that satisfies all we need. And last week, we, I kept talking about how God invites us to a table, that God, the bridegroom, if you will, is preparing a place for us to feast at. And many times we sit at that table and feast, but other times we get caught up in all the other tables offered by any other thing. And may I say that those tables are not just offered by the devil? It's not just the devil at work. There's tables offered by all kinds of things. But God says, if you would fix your eyes on me, I would bring you into a banquet that fills you up more than anything you could ever imagine. And as we were talking about this invitation, this, this bride is recognizing that the king is at the table. The king is sitting there and preparing a place for me. And then she starts going into how much she loves him. And we read two verses last week that I want to go over again. She says this in verse 13 of Song of Solomon 1. A sachet of myrrh is my lover, like a tied up bundle of myrrh resting over my heart. Now other versions say uh, like a, a, a bundle of myrrh uh, sitting between my breasts. The, the point of this is back then these women would wear these necklaces that would sit right there. And it's a symbolism of keeping uh, him close or the perfume close to her heart. She says, he is like a bouquet of henna blossoms. Henna plucked near the vines at the fountain of the lamb. I will hold him and never let him part. The Shulamite woman compares his value to a valuable bundle of myrrh she carried. It was customary, again, to carry this with, with them all the time. They would do it for a couple reasons. One, when you carry a, a bundle of myrrh or, a, uh, or a, a sachet of oil or those things that are in a necklace, it would bring about a great fragrance. So when she would walk into a room, all the men would go, who that? Right? The, the, so it was a, a way to attract the beloved. There was also this thing they did. They would carry this oil and they would carry this perfume, very costly oil and perfume, because they wanted to be ready to give it up, to sell it, to trade it for something valuable. We saw that specifically last week it was a spikenard uh, specifically, and it was very, very expensive. The same oil poured out on Jesus that, that, that Mary poured out from, from head to toe, anointing him for, for the, the burial. It was resting on a necklace between her breasts, close to her heart, saying, I will hold him right here. He is like this precious ointment that I hold right here, close to my heart. And I'm keeping him close for a reason. And I really wanted to dive into that idea of keeping him close. 
Because the question tonight I have for you is, how do you value the truth of his presence? How do you value the truth of his presence? Presence is not an atmosphere. Presence is a revelation that he is present. We use these phrases. Now, I'm gonna, you may hear some things I've talked about, and I'm probably going to do it for a while in this series, so bear with me if you've heard this. Presence is not an atmosphere. Presence is a revelation that God is actually present. He is among us. He is with us. He is here in this room. I go back to the question, how do you value the truth that the King of Kings, God Almighty, is right here among us and with us? And we don't have to wait for a mist to come in the room for his presence to be any more real than it is. We use these phrases in church a lot, I want to get in the presence. If you are still using that terminology of I want to get in the presence, you have failed to recognize that you can't escape it. And when you start to become enamored by this revelation that I can't escape his presence, he is always with me, then atmospheres shift not because he's there more than here, but because atmospheres shift according to your revelation and you're agreeing with that revelation that he's here. When does the atmosphere shift? It depends on your agreement that you actually understand he is with you. So things happen like revivals, not because he's more present in Kentucky, but because in a moment there was a revelation of how present he actually was. It's not that God, God decided to pour out more there than here. It's they got it. And even if it was temporary, they got it. The point of revival is not to stay there. And some will argue with me. They're wrong. The point of revival is not to stay there. What is revival? Let me help you catch your breath back. And when you get the breath, what are you going to do with it? What happened in Kentucky, what happened in Brownsville, what happened at Azusa, what happened to all these places was in a moment they, got the, they had the revelation of, oh, he's the reason I'm here. He's the reason I'm breathing. He is the reason for all things. And what happens after a revival moment is what do I do with the breath? That is why I say we have been in revival because there has been a reviving of truth in this house. There's been a reviving of gifts in this house. It may not look like 20 days of praise, but it is looking like eyes being awakened. And the awakening is not to anything new. It's to a present reality. God is here. It's not just He's present, there's presence, it's that he is present. And when, the way God works is he wants atmospheres to shift. But it's not based off of when he wants it, it's based off of when you agree. Because when he made the earth, he made a kind that would govern it. And when God speaks something into existence, he can't go back on what he spoke. Because when you speak it, especially when it's God, it is. 
Let me read a passage in Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them, this is the man and the woman, and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what? Govern it. Rain over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Why did he have to give his word to become a man called Jesus? Because God did not want to govern the earth simply by here I am. He needed something in a fleshly suit made of the dust to govern it. So he said, if you're not going to do it, let me show you how it's supposed to look. I can't just send my word. I've got to send my word in the form of what was meant to govern. So redemption is, oh, that's how I'm supposed to walk. That's how I am supposed to govern. That is how I am supposed to rule. I am not to be ruled by my circumstances. I'm not to be ruled by how I was brought up. I'm not to be ruled by the rules of the church that Jesus never put into place. I am not to be ruled by anything other than him. And when I walk into a room, I don't have to worry about a fighting with the devil because if I know my place, he has to bow the moment my foot steps in because he is the king of kings and the enemy bows to the king whether he likes it or not. Your agreement with it determines if it's true. It reminds me of, I forget he was speak, who he was speaking to, but the, 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 the man, I believe, possessed by the, the demon said, hey, I, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? Because the enemy knows if you know who you are or not. And when you start to understand who you are, you'll start to understand the enemy's place. You know where it is? Under your feet. Is that okay? Hmm. But, he could, but God says, I'm not going to do this just by my spirit alone. I'm going to get me into the very thing I created to govern it. The fact of the matter is, God is everywhere. He's downtown. He's in the clubs. He's in the bars. He's in most of the churches. That was a joke. He's everywhere. But the revelation of his presence is not. So our prayer is not, God, would you come into this nation? God, would you come into this city? God, would you come into this town? God, would you come into this land? It's no, no, no. We have to start honoring the revelation and the truth that he's already here. He is already among us. Not God come, it's God, I recognize where you are. And I can't escape you. And when we start to understand this revelation that he is here and keep that close right here in our hearts, in our mind, in our very being, then atmospheres like a city will shift, not because God decided to come, but because you started to agree. God, come into my house. No, 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 no. He's already there. But do you agree with it or do you walk into a false dimension reality? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. You are just as with God as you will be in the heavenlies. Do you believe that? I can't wait to get to the throne room. You are already there. But you won't see it if you don't agree with it. You know what healing is? I agree with a reality that's not my present. Right? You know what walking in beloved identity is? 
I agree with a me that I still haven't seen. But my agreement is not what I see. My agreement is in what he sees. Right? We got to stop asking God to come and simply start thanking him for being here by way of our words and our actions. David said it like this in Psalm 25, 4 through 5. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long, I put my hope in you. All day long. In other words, David is saying, I'm carrying you with me. Just like the Shulamite. I'm keeping you right here. And everything I do, every thought I have, every plan I try to make, every way I react to someone who comes at me with a blessing or comes at me with a curse, I keep you so close that the way I respond, the way I sow in, the way I carry myself is based on a revelation that God is present in the moment. And when we start to shift our realities that he is present, that's how you get control of your tongue. Because your tongue starts to agree with the reality. But religion will tell you, get your tongue right so that you can experience his presence. Whether you get it right or not does not change the fact that he's here. But when we shift our agreement to it, all the things not of God actually start to line up. Because he'll start to give you new desires. The desires of his heart because you're keeping him close. That is the difference between walking in grace versus walking in law. How does grace and love fulfill the law? It's real, but it's not trying to get into law management. It's trying to get into faithful marriage. And when you get in a faithful marriage, all the things that you do start to look like fulfilling the law. Right? It's not let me get it right, it's let me get lost in a relationship where there is no room for wrong. Right? It's a call to the reality of his presence and everything we do. We must move from a perception that he's distant to a reality that he's here. And many want to engage in the spirit of God, but fail to walk in close to heart reality. Marty stole it from me, but I'm just kidding. The scripture that God gave her was, she didn't know this, but God gave me this to, to put in right here in John 4, 24. For God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship him in what? Spirit and truth. Your worship cannot be limited to an engagement with your spirit, but a marriage with your entire self. It cannot be, I believe in God, but I do not do. Because that is, I worship him in spirit. Oh, yeah, I believe in him. I know he's real. I worship him in spirit. And God says, no, 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 no. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship him in truth simply means this. I believe it is true and my worship is displayed as truth is shown in how I live. <clears throat> I'm not trying to earn or prove anything, but the way I live is a response to how I hold him close. <clears throat> is this making sense? Is this Okay. When God sees that, he responds a certain way. And his response is like the king's response to the Shulamite woman. 
a groom to his bride. This is what he says in verse 15. My darling, you are so lovely. <clears throat> Let me just say that again. Look at you, my dearest darling. You are so lovely. Do you realize that his response is after she's talking about, I'm keeping you right here. You are beauty itself to me. Your passionate eyes are like gentle doves. The king looks at the Shulamite woman and says, I see your eyes. They're like gentle doves, doves being a symbol of love. He says, I see the sincerity of love in your eyes. In other words, he says, bride, church, I see where you fix your gaze. By how close you keep me, I see where your eyes are put. <clears throat> and when you fix your eyes on him, the things that your soul thirsts and longs for, it won't look to dry wells of empty relationships, dry wells of temporary satisfactions, or any other banquet table for that matter. Instead, you will be satisfied in the one with everlasting streams. Not based off let me get it right, but based off of let me fix my eyes. <clears throat> and part of fixing your gaze on him, and this is, this is what I'm so excited to share, and maybe it's not exciting for you, but it's exciting for me. When we start to fix our gaze on him, we actually start to come to God in a correct posture. But the posture may surprise you. Because God showed me something that just made me go, Wow. Don't you love those like wow moments? So I'm going to read a passage from 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, <clears throat> has made his, the light shine in our hearts so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again. God said, let there be light in the darkness. Let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not ourselves. Now watch this. I think, if, I think something that we forget is we always attribute darkness to bad. But let, let me remind you, God created day and. He created light and he created darkness. He said, let there be light in dark places. Now, I've taught this over and over, that light means Knowledge. Darkness means simply, it's, it's not evil, it's ignorance. Darkness is ignorance. But this is what I missed. God says, let there be light in dark places. If darkness is merely ignorance, we must understand that it is a posture of not knowing. So he says, come to me in a posture of dark or I don't know what I think I know, so that your gaze is no longer fixed on what you know, rather dare to believe you have no idea despite what you think. 
So the humble posture of God is, I'm putting all of my wisdom to the side and I'm coming to you as if I have no idea so that your light shows me what I need to do. Don't come to God saying, I know you said this, but what about here? Come to him as if you know nothing but his presence. I, I refer back to the garden. We ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. We were not supposed to have knowledge of anything evil, and we were no, not supposed to have knowledge of anything good. But we have a lot of knowledge of it. So what is our posture? I don't know anything. Here's my darkness. Light me up. It will change your prayer life. When we get so humble to come before God as if we know nothing, so that he can show us things that we never would have known. I dare you to trust in a relationship where your eyes are so fixed on God that you come to him in a posture of not knowing or darkness so that the glory of his face will light up your path and the place that you're seeking him in. God, I choose not to act on anything I know. Light up my darkness. Is, is, am I the only one wowed by that? Gosh. God, I willingly assume that all I know is you. Show me what you want me to see. Light up my posture of assuming I know nothing. I'm fixing my eyes on you so that the only thing I see is what's in your eyes. The only thing I see is the light of your face that we see in Jesus. Light up my darkness. And in understanding that, I'm going to read a verse that I read earlier on in a new way. Song of Solomon 1.5. I am dark, but beautiful. O woman of, Jeru o woman of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tent. She comes in a posture of, I come before you not knowing my worth. And the beloved father welcomes you to see worth because your gaze is fixed on him, which lights up the beauty that you see is dark. I am dark but beautiful. Why is she dark but beautiful? I am before my king, and the only identity I have is not in how my brothers treated me in the vineyards. It's not how the sun beat me down and made me dark. The only identity I have is beautiful is because my eyes, she says, are fixed on that king. How could she call herself beautiful and go through a three verses, I'm dark, I'm burnt, I've been working in the fields, because she said, the only thing I see is not that. The only thing I see is a face of my king, which is the light in this dark place. Even though I am dark, I am beautiful. And some of you are limiting pathways in your life because you are not convinced that you're beautiful. You still see yourself as, I, I, I am the victim of circumstance. You don't know what I've gone through. And God says, hey, let's throw that knowledge away and come to me dark. <laughs> because the knowledge of good and evil, right? 
The knowledge of how bad you had it is blinding you to light. So throw away that knowledge. Throw, <laughs> throw away that knowledge and say, light up my ignorance. What are you ignorant to? You are beautiful. You're holy. You're righteous. The Bible says you are, at, you are the righteousness of God. You know what that means? God says, when I look at you, you are as righteous as I am. When you get lost in how he sees you, when you get lost in what plans he has for you, your faith actually begins to work. Because your gaze is no longer in logic. Your gaze is no longer in the knowledge of your past or even the knowledge of your present. Your gaze is simply in the beloved. Keep that close. The moment you start talking yourself out of things, get, get, walk into a posture of, you know what? I don't know what I'm capable of. I assure you that he has plans for you that you could never imagine yourself qualified for. But the only way you get that light is fix your gaze and say, you know what? All that stuff I know about myself, God, light up my darkness. I choose to not know that. Your, your faith actually begins when you get lost in the fact that he loves you. Galatians 5, 6. For if we are in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor or uncircumcision means anything, but only, listen to this, faith that is activated, expressed, and working through love. Your faith is active and expressed and works when you get lost in the revelation of the presence of God who loved you and called you beautiful, lovely, righteous, and holy. Why is it that we can, I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again. Why is it that we can have the faith the size of a mustard seed that can move mountains, but mountains aren't moving? Because it only works when you understand that you're loved. Because we try to work our faith by let me try to get it all right. Instead of letting the getting it all right come from an outflowing or outpouring, if you will, of man, I'm loved by God. You want to know how love activates your faith? When you look at a situation and you speak to it, you don't have an ounce of doubt anymore because it's not I'm good enough to speak to it. It's I'm loved by the one who puts power through my tongue. Hmm. And after this king says, I see your gaze and you're beautiful, and you're lovely, the Shulamite, the Shulamite woman responds to him. This is what he said in verse 16. She said, My beloved one, both handsome and winsome, you are pleasing beyond words. Our resting place is anointed and flourishing like a green forest meadow bathed in light. Before, I, I'm going to remind you of where the resting place is. It's in the shadow. What is shadow? It's, 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 a, it's dark. I don't, I don't ever remember seeing a white shadow. 
when you get in the secret place of giving up your knowledge for the knowledge of presence, that place is anointed. It's flourishing. It's like a green forest meadow bathed in light. Your dark is, the resting place of dark shadow of God is bathed in the knowledge you need. Rafters of cedar branches are over our heads and balconies of pleasant smelling pines. She describes the resting place. It's anointed. It's flourishing. She says it's like a green forest meadow and the resting place in the shadow. She says, I rest in the shade of I assume nothing other than what you reveal. Other translations for green uh, forest meadow, it, it says our bed is green. Or the, the, the place of lovers is flourishing. The, the word there, burden, is green. The word literally meant a fresh vegetation. The secret place of presence is always fresh. It's never stale and it's always producing. And when you find yourself coming to him resting in his dark shade, you become engaged in a presence lifestyle where you move in what is bathed in light. You don't move based off of where your eyes are. Your eyes are so lost in him, you only move in the shadow of his presence, which is bathed in the light of his knowledge. I choose to not look for any other thing. My eyes are lost in you. I don't need to see the path. I just need to see where you're going. That's why it becomes easy to take step one when you don't see steps two through eight because you're not focused or neither interested in the steps. All you want is, let, let, me, stay in this, let me stay in the shadow because the shadow is bathed in the knowledge of God. And in doing so, you start to have this Experience of a day-to-day -day walk with God. Like she describes as walking on a countryside of green meadows, bathed in light, fresh with fruit. And she concludes, recovered in rafters of cedar branches over our heads and balconies of pine. She's literally describing the presence of God like walking in this forest, if you will, this flourishing place. It's speaking of taking delight in this day-to-day -day walk with the beloved, and his covering is strong and durable, and it will never fade. You can always depend on him. He's always there. It's the temple of a fresh and sweet dwelling place. To keep him close is a personal revelation of how close he already is. And we keep that in the forefront of our mind, in the forefront of our heart. To be renewed in your mind is walking in a posture of close proximity. To be renewed by your mind is get your mind in line with this idea. I take him with me. I am my beloved's. My beloved's mind. That's how your mind gets transformed. You understand that he is yours and you're his. You get lost in everything you look for and only walk in what he wants. Which brings me to Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 1. I know it's not long tonight, but has this been okay so far? She says, I am the spring crocus blooming on the Sharon plain, the lily of the valley. Now we read that and we're like, what the heck? 
heck does that mean, right? Because she kept him close, close, her view of herself changed. She went from talking about how dark she was to I'm the spring bloom on the Sharon Plain. I'm the lily of the valley. Her identity shifted because of how close she was. You know how Simon got lost in the identity of Peter? It was walking with the man who taught him how to fish, right? Got, when we get lost in a close proximity with God, in that reality, the view, the view of herself changes. In her first encounters with this king, she was unsure of herself, of her appearance, of her self-worth. And it's kind of like when believers first come to know Jesus. We come to the courts for the first time in belief, right? And we can be unsure of ourselves. We can be nervous. And the only thing we are sure of is the moment you need a Savior. The problem is we stay in a moment of needing a Savior instead of walking in the reality of the, the truth that you are saved. Okay. We walk in the reality that we are saved, no longer in a posture of, I need a Savior. We are saved. I needed that. I couldn't escape that, but I'm saved. I am my beloved's. And when you spend time in his presence, in a revelation that you're his, your whole person starts to shift. You start to view you as how the lover views you, as how the beloved sees you, as how the bridegroom sees you. She says, I am the spring crocus blooming on the Sharon plain. Now, other translations actually say, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. The Sharon was this very low coastal plain that stretched from Mount Carmel to the south. It was beautiful. It was full of fruit. It's mentioned several times in Scripture. It's where David's cattle fed. It was mentioned in Isaiah as a place of excellence, as a place of flocks. The rose actually means to form bulbs or a fruit of a rose bush. So as she kept the presence of this lover close, her eyes became open to a new identity I am the fruit of my king's beautiful field. I'm the rose in his field. You see, many actually teach in theological circles that in verse 1, it's the king who is speaking, and we attribute the rose of Sharon being Jesus. But the truth is, it's not Jesus who is the rose of Sharon. He's the keeper of the field for the fruit of roses. Did, did you catch that? The fruit in the field or the rose of Sharon, the lily in the valley, is not Jesus. It's who Jesus came to make right. You. 
The king responds when she says this. She says, I'm the rose. And she says in verse 2, or this is what he says in verse 2 in response to the Shulamite woman saying, I'm the rose. The king says, you're like a lily among thistles. Is my darling among young women. God says, you stand out from all the rest in all of my fields. Thorns are all around you. People who say that I'm not real are all around you. People who try to make you question your identity is all around you. But you, son or daughter, you, bride, you are the lily. You are the spring crocus. You are the fruit in the field. You are my beautiful treasure. I love how the Passion Translation says this. Look at this in verses 1 and 2. I am truly his rose, the very theme of his song. I'm overshadowed by his love like a lily growing in a valley. When you get lost in how you're loved, you are a rose in a valley that was never prepared to produce fruit. Well, my environment is not conducive to me producing. So, when you get overshadowed in love, the only atmosphere that needs to produce fruit is presence. And it don't matter where you are. You'll be a rose among the thistles, among the thorns. Yes, you are my darling companion. You stand out from all the rest. For though the thorns surround you, you remain as pure as a lily more than all the others. We are the theme of his song to be sung over this whole earth. And when we keep him close, we actually walk into that revelation. Why am I bringing this up? This is the other wow. Isaiah shares a prophecy called the hope for restoration. And this is what he says in Isaiah 35, 1 through 2. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Who is the spring crocus? Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. In other words, Isaiah says this, the wasteland and the desert will be glad, it will rejoice, it will blossom with the spring crocus, there will be flowers, singing, joy, the deserts will become green because the way they become green and the way the flowers sprout is not talking about a literal redemption of the land, it's talking about a redemption of the people that the land will respond to. You are, you are what makes the desert green. You are what makes the wilderness bare. You are the fruit in it. The prophecy is not about the literal green in the mountains. It's you are the fruit that makes it. Well, have you seen how, my, how this city looks? God ain't, God ain't doing nothing. Are you focused on the city or on the blossoming of flowers in it? Because we are that. That's the singing. That's the rejoicing. That is the revival of the land. Because my Bible says that the earth is groaning for the sons of man to be revealed. So when we take our place as Rose of Sharon, the earth goes, there it is. 
and it starts producing. There, there was a revival uh, in, where was the, uh, the, the, with the, with the, guy, the pastors and the, the streams and the, all that stuff? Cambridge? Cain something. Cambridge? Okay. And what happened was, long story short, these pastors started getting together of different denominations, and they were supposed to go on this big prayer walk. It started pouring rain, and then they were like, well, let's not do this. But then one or two pastors that said, no, we're going to do it. They started walking in the rain. This, this place, it, it was poverty. There was no vegetation. Nothing was producing in the land. The water was polluted. They walked and walked and walked, and by the end of the, the, the day, the entire town was walking in the rain, praising and rejoicing in the midst of a horrible downpour. And you know what happened to the place? The water's purified. There's beautiful vegetation. There's tons of jobs. No one's hurting for anything. How did the land respond? The land did not respond to the presence of God because he was already there. It responded to the governors who agreed. So restoration is when we start to agree that we are the thing that everything responds to. When we get lost in, oh my gosh, he loves me. The Lord will display his glory through people who get lost in beloved identity and keep him close. These last two verses. It says, like the finest apple tree in the orchard, is my lover among any other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. You know why there's fruit in the shade? That's the banquet table. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Delight in the Lord. He calls you lovely. Take delight in the idea that he is the greatest and there's no one like him. When we come to him sitting in this delightful shade, tasting this fruit, we come in a posture of, you know what, God? I don't know anything. I just want to be overwhelmed by whatever light you want to put right here. In other words, humble yourself before the Lord. I sit in the shade and taste from whatever fruit you give me, God. Keep him close. What's interesting is that the Hebrew word here for tasting the fruit, the fruit is a Hebrew word, hanak, which means discipline. It's the same word used in Proverbs 22 where it says train up a child in the way it should go. Well, the custom back then for training up children was when they were young, they would get them to recite basically scripture, Old Testament. And the way they would train them is when they gave a truth of scripture, they'd put honey on their lips. So that every time they spoke of the word of God, they associated it with the sweetness. So you know what God says the way he wants to train up his children? <laughs> he, he says... You get a taste of this. You get a taste of how sweet I am and how pleasing I am. 
so that whenever life comes at you and you make a decision, you'll remember how sweet my presence is. He says, keep, keep that close. It's a sweet smelling aroma. He is the spike nard. He's the bridegroom that says, I love you. Keep them close. I want to end this message with peewee. <laughs> I told you about this. Don't have surprise. He, God showed him something, and I felt like it was the perfect ending for this message. And I'm going to let him close out the service with however Holy Spirit leads. This is part of this message. Check this out. On the spot. Um, I, I'll learn to keep my mouth shut. Uh, last Sunday, I, I was out in the yard working, and um, I, I, lot I, I work. I try to act like Mr. John and try to grow things, and I'll get out there a lot of times, just kind of just in the presence of God, really. You know what I mean? And, and it's like I, I was listening to a, 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 a guy sharing his testimony and it's something that God's really been showing me a lot here lately is when, when you I, I you know just I, it's like he puts a light above people's head like when they're giving their testimony so many times they spend an hour on the old man it's like the God, God was showing me it's like all this time that of how bad I was you know, and and you, and a lot of times, you, you, if you pay attention to people when they give their testimony, a lot it's, everything's on the old man and not the new man. And I, and I didn't know how this was going to tie in. He started kind of talking. I'm like, okay, all right. <clears throat> but the thing, it, it, the thing is, is After, after I, I, I was sitting out in the yard and I was sitting there and it's like God said, you know why that is? He said, because so many people are looking for a savior and not a king. And, and, that's it. and when he said it, I'm like, I, I get it. You know, and, and, something, and all, everything that we're talking about here with, talk, you know, with, with the Song of Songs, I, I even talked about the other night in the group, is the story Esther. Everything in this thing, if we have a real life picture in the story of Esther, because the thing was, it, 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 as you begin to, to read the story about Esther, is the, the, to me, I think it's a setup by God that said that she was fatherless or parentless. If you notice that, so many times God wants to show us pictures of, of how we're supposed to come to Him. And Esther, Esther knew because she had a man that took her in as her own and, and placed her in, in an area where God was wanting to use her to begin to save the people. You know, and so it, all this stuff, and you know how he set that up is the same thing he talked about the table. It was his, the queen that had the seat refused to go to the banquet. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's so crazy it, it, it is a total setup of what we're talking about because the thing was the preparation of it the, of where we talk about like of we won't talk about old man she didn't talk about her old self She when it came time when he said that she was going to be no more to bring the other available women before me 
there was preparation went in, up to a year of preparing herself to come before the king. And um, to me, it, it is, it's, it's an amazing story because the thing is, is when she, <clears throat> when she accepted that and, and she prepared herself to go before the king, it came a time where they, they, he even decreed to take out her people. And um, she, she, she told them to begin to pray and prepare for her to go. She was going to go before the king. She could be killed. But she, she went and she, she did. She went before him and said that, that when he seen her, said the gaze of his eyes that fell upon her, said that he dropped the scepter over her. And he, everything, everything, he said, everything up to half the kingdom is yours. Right there at her. And the thing was, and, and I feel like there's so many times when we're all sitting there with an opportunity. Are we willing to take the stuff or our purpose? And, that, and, and at that moment, she could, have, she could have took half of the kingdom, but the call for the people. <clears throat> so, I don't know what this is. I mean, like I said, he, he put this on to share, but how many of us here to, tonight? You know, that... say that there's got to come a point where we're so lost in the beloved that we move from Savior to King. I feel like the call tonight for that, for the King was, Lord, I'm yours. No longer just a, I need you, but uh, I'm yours. How many of you know that you need a King? How many, how many of us have been stuck that have, have been have been doing this and, and and know that we've been in systems where we we we've been thinking I mean you think about it every time it is an easy way out you is a savior. You know what I mean? I, I'm not taking nothing, you know what I mean, we all need it. But the thing is is when you begin to walk into bowing your knee to the king, that's laying down everything. Because a savior, we can always come back. It, it can it reciprocates, and I feel like so many times that's the way we I have it come growing up in, in in a system of of just okay. Well, I miss it this time and pick it back up. But when I truly begin to understand that there's a king and he truly loves me, it totally changes everything. With, with that, let's stand. <clears throat> I'm not even going to close in prayer tonight. I'm just going to offer an invitation. I, not, the altar workers don't even come up. This is just a... Uh, you stay as long as you want. You can come to the altar and skill on your knees, but tonight's altar call is just simply this. Lord, I, I, I come to you humbly.
and say, light up my darkness. Forget anything that you thought you knew of yourself. Tonight's altar call is, I forfeit my knowledge of me and I accept my knowledge of who you see me as. That's tonight. He loves you. The king has called you with assignments, with purpose. The king has called you as a lily in the field. The king has called you as a, the beautiful fruit that this area needs. Tonight's get convinced that you are the one he's chosen. Stay as long as you want. Leave when you want. Get convinced tonight.